Would you turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 12 through to 20 this morning. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, we've had that reminder of the prophecy in Isaiah, which is similar to the one in Malachi, that there would be a Messiah to come, that God himself would come before God came. There would be a messenger. Uh, 700 years, that question has sat there, who are these people? The messenger has been revealed as John the Baptist and the Lord to come is Jesus Christ. And Jesus has just been baptized. And then Mark picks up right from there in verse 12. is what we read, verses 12 to 20 of Mark 1. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther uh, from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. This is a reading of God's word for this morning. And would you... Join me as we pray once more and ask for God's wisdom as we seek to unpack this. Lord God, as we come now to dive into your word together, we pray that you might reveal to us your truth. We live in an age where truth has become subjective, yet we know with you there is truth. Truth untarnished, truth unchanged. And we pray that your spirit might reveal that to us this morning, that we might better rejoice in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and what he did, and better live out what he taught us. We ask this in his name. Amen. So this morning we are, of course, continuing to chug through Mark's Gospel. Uh, Last week we had a little bit of a break, which I was disappointed about, but thankful for Peter preaching last week for us, as I was unwell. And as we get into our text today, you might have noticed that if you've got the subsections there, we've basically got three different sections to cover. And that might seem like an absolutely crazy and monumental task. I don't think it is though. We look at this and uh, we see three amazing things that by God's grace I think we can deal with this morning. We see Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We see Jesus' ministry really beginning when he goes into Galilee. And then we see him calling disciples to follow after him. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, one of the features of Mark that I mentioned was it's very action-oriented. It goes, this, this thing happened and then they went here or immediately this happened. And we see that right here this morning. Jesus' baptism is a, a massive point in Scripture. It's a massive point in Mark's Gospel. And we see the triune God, all three persons of the one Godhead present, active in the one place. It's an incredible thing. But Mark's told us all he needs to about that. 
So we get to verse 12 and immediately something else happens. Immediately the Spirit drove him, that is Jesus, into the wilderness. Keeps pumping on the story, doesn't it? It's not stopping. You've got to get on the train, you've got to keep with it. Keeps moving. It's quick, it's fast paced. I really love it. Jesus was getting baptized in the wilderness with John, then he was driven further into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark puts it to us as simply as that. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, tells us what happened in the wilderness, but we might be left wondering why did this happen? Why did Jesus go further into the wilderness? Why did the Holy Spirit cause this to be? Why did Jesus go into the wilderness for 40 days? If his baptism, which we saw two weeks ago, was effectively him being sanctified for the work and the ministry that he was going to do. Well, let's look at it. Now, Mark doesn't go into as much detail as the other gospel writers. Other gospel accounts go into far more depth and they record uh, Jesus' time in the wilderness with uh, the discussion between Jesus and Satan, the temptation such as what we reference in the kids' talk of Matthew chapter 4. Again, as I said last time, this doesn't make Mark a lesser gospel. It just shows us that Mark works in concert with the other gospels. And the fact is, if all we had of the life of Jesus was Mark's gospel, we would still have a comprehensive account of Jesus' life to know that he is the Son of God, to know that he is the Saviour of the world, and to know that we only have life in him. But it's a briefer account. And even though Mark is briefer than the other Gospels, there's still a lot in us for, for us to see today. And I think we live in a blessed time in that regard. We have a blessing of our particular vantage point in history. We look around us in the world today, things that have dominated the news cycles this week even, and we do see incredible difficulties about the world we live in and increasing difficulties for Christians. Yet we do have a wonderful blessing that God has graced us with to be able to look back on these things that happened. We look back on this knowing what the outcome of Jesus' life and death and resurrection were, that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And we know that Jesus' earthly ministry was ultimately heading towards a cross, which, bear that in mind, when Jesus tells these four men who we see later to follow me, that's a significant thing. We won't dive into it too much now because we deal with it in later chapters of Mark, but it's a significant thing. Jesus' ministry is ultimately heading to the cross where he would die for the sins of the world. He knew this. And you could argue that the next three to three and a half years was going to be harder than anything anyone else has ever lived. And as this time of ministry is about to begin, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. And as he is driven into the wilderness, this isn't just Jesus sitting trying to find shade under the biggest rock that he can, maybe hope that a vine will grow up like Jonah had. This is Jesus spending time with his father. spending time with the one who has publicly stated just before this that Jesus is his son with whom he is well pleased. And as Jesus spends his time in the wilderness, the, the Father is providing for the needs 
of his son Jesus. Jesus is with the wild beasts and he is ministered to by the angels. That is an incredibly wonderful provision, particularly as we consider what Jesus is about to begin heading towards. But maybe that raises more questions. What does it mean to be ministered to by the angels? Well, if you pick up any two commentaries, you're going to get different views. And you're going to get more expansive views or more condensed views on what this exactly means. And I don't think we exactly know what it looks like. We don't know exactly what the angels did to minister to Jesus. We just aren't told. But what we can see, and what we can be encouraged by, is that the Father is encouraging the Son through this time of the angels ministering to him. At the end of this time, Jesus was going to be tempted, and I think we face temptation in lots of ways ourselves. And I think sometimes temptation can stem from jealousy, of looking at something saying, well, if that person got that, I'd like that too. I'm not sure if you've ever had a conversation with anyone about this part of Mark's gospel or where it comes up in other places the angels ministered to Jesus. I don't think it's a new thing. Matthew Henry writes about this, and he's been dead for a few, you know, a few years now in his commentary. I've had these conversations with people where we look at this account and say, wow, I want the angels to minister to me too. If the angels minister to Jesus, I want the angels to minister to me too in those same sorts of ways. And maybe we look at this and feel a sense of jealousy, a sense of temptation, that we want that to be justified, to be comforted in the lives that we live, because let's face it, we do have difficulties. Things aren't always smooth. We might want this to help us through. Now, I say that because I've had this conversation more than once. And while that would be a wonderful thing, and perhaps it does happen in ways we aren't aware of, what we need to remember is that the one who is ultimately ministering to Jesus through the angels, his heavenly Father, is the one who ministers to us every single day of our lives as Christians. The Holy Spirit leads us, it guards us, it disciplines us, it guides us. Does this because of what Jesus accomplished? And we too are graciously ministered to by God himself. So as we look at this, don't look at this with a sense of envy. Look at this as a sense of we are ministered to by the same God who ministered to Jesus. So there's that aspect to the time in the wilderness. But then there's the, the significant overarching thing that comes up here. is a temptation that Jesus faced. Again, Mark doesn't go into the details. The other gospel accounts go much deeper in this. But perhaps after hearing what we did earlier in the kids' talk of Matthew chapter 4, we look at the temptations that Jesus faced and go, that just doesn't really make sense. How could bread or jumping off something so the angels catch him or being given authority over everything ever be a temptation to Jesus? 
This is the one who's got dominion over all things, the one who, as we read in Daniel 7, as our supplementary reading last week, whose kingdom shall never end, whose kingdom shall reign forever, who can never be deposed from his throne. How on earth could he be tempted? If we step back and look at it logically, there's just no sense to the temptations given to Jesus. I think that's true for us as well. As Christians, we are found in God. We have our identity in God, the God who supplies for our every need and looks after us for all of eternity. When we find temptations that might look shiny, it might look fantastic right now, and we step back and see God in this, how could that ever have been something I thought would be good? There's a sense in which the temptations don't make sense. And this is so often the nature of temptation. There's a substanceless, empty nature to them. What could we possibly gain that God hasn't already given to us? Jesus is spending time with his Father. He knows who he is. He knows God's ministering to him. The temptation is not going to work and Jesus teaches us how to confront that with God's word. But another question that might arise from this is how on earth could Jesus face temptation? How could Jesus be tempted? If he is God, how could he be tempted? And if you do a Google search, how could Jesus be tempted? You're going to get a lot of answers to it. It's not an uncommon question to ask. There are many, many, many people who have asked this question. How on earth could Jesus be tempted? How could God incarnate ever feel the need to possibly say, yes, I would like to turn that rock into bread. Yes, I would like to jump and be caught by the angels. Yes, I would like every earthly kingdom. Even though he owns it all. How could Jesus face temptation? Well, if you're looking for more, I found this very helpful. The answers in, Answering Genesis website talks about this in language that I think is about as clear and simple as I've ever seen. Now, they do use some bigger words, but then they explain them. It's very helpful. And they bring up the confusion that comes with Jesus' temptation. We look at passages like James chapter 1, verse 13. God cannot be tempted. We look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, where Moses tells the people, God, or do not tempt God. So what is it? Can God be tempted or can God not be tempted? We perhaps see Jesus just adding more confusion to this thing. Is it possible to tempt God or not? And how we see the word temptation plays a big role in this because today temptation is pretty much always a bad thing. I'm not sure if they still sell them, but those temptations ice creams that used to be advertised on TV, they used to almost glorify themselves as being something unhealthy. It's bad for you, but it tastes good, so you want it. So we see temptation as an almost exclusively bad thing. But this hasn't always been the understanding of the word temptation. It can mean put to the test. So James is 100% correct when he tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil and God cannot be put to the test by evil. 
And when Moses tells the people, don't tempt God, he's not saying God might lose his holiness or God can be tempted. He's saying, don't even try to put God to the test. He has proven himself to you. Don't do what you're trying to do. But again, how could Jesus be tempted? It comes down to who Jesus is. And Jesus, we must remember, has two natures. He is both God and man. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to how to best describe that. We might see people describe it. And I used to do this myself as God being 100% God and 100% man. And I'm not good at maths, but I know that doesn't check out. So fully God and fully man. This is who Jesus is. Now, there's a theological term for this called the hypostatic union. Now, that's actually a lot easier than it sounds. It basically says Jesus is completely God and Jesus is completely man. And because Jesus was completely man as well as completely God, it was a human nature that was put to the test by the devil. He was put to the test. Now, again, I've probably labored this a little bit, but it's important for us to see this because this is a significant thing. Jesus was put to the test, but Jesus did not fall. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. We read of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We should rejoice at what we read here in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. These two verses here should cause us to rejoice. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. The first Adam was put to test by Satan. Albeit indirectly, he was put to test by Satan and he failed. He fell. He did not pass the test that was put to him. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, did not fail the test. We should rejoice when we read this, not just skim over it and say, oh, Satan tempted Jesus and he didn't give in to it. There is a significance to this. There is an incredible significance to this. That Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. That Jesus has felt temptation, again, Hebrews chapter 4, in every way as we have. He is not distant from the things that might threaten us and might, that might look good to us right now. But we should rejoice because Jesus did not fail where Adam failed. Jesus did not fail where we failed. And while what Mark puts here is brief, it just builds an even more compelling case for the person of Christ. It builds an even more compelling case of this one who is God and man. It builds a compelling case for us to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus and turn to Jesus in all things because he knows what we face. Jesus was ministered to by the Father. He spent time with the Father for those 40 days in the wilderness. He was tempted and he did not fail where every single other person on the face of the earth has failed. And it's with this that he begins his earthly ministry. He has been encouraged and looked after by the Father. He has succeeded where everyone else has failed. And then he begins his ministry. He goes to Galilee. Now, we have that quick note there in verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, if you want to find out more about that, look at Luke chapter 3. 
But Mark assumes that people know John's been put in prison, and if not, he's been put in prison. Don't go into the details of it. And it's about Jesus. This is about the suffering servant. Mark doesn't have to flesh this out. Doesn't detract from what we learn of Jesus. While it's terrible what happened to John, as we read in Luke 3, we should remember the words that John himself said. Some of his followers just before this were starting to go to Jesus rather than stay with himself. And some of his other followers came to John and said, John, what's happening? You're losing your following. What's going on? And John's response was one of incredible humility, which we should seek to to, to model ourselves. John says, I must decrease that he might increase. John is decreasing here that Christ might increase. The humility we saw from John in those first 11 verses was not a one-off. And Jesus came to Galilee and Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. To believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling people, believe in me. I am God who has come and taken on human flesh to die for your sins. Is effectively where we end up with that as we flesh it out to its conclusion. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. And believe in me is what Jesus says. Now, if we've spent significant time in churches, we understand that that's the sort of language that we use. But we live in a world that doesn't appreciate that sort of language. Just tell someone that they need to repent is to tell someone that they have significantly dropped the ball. We live in a world of fragile egos. I'm sure there were many fragile egos back then too, who simply don't like hearing this. Repent and believe in me. Maybe that message of repent might make us feel small, It might make us feel inadequate because that is the same thing we hear from Jesus when we read this today. If we have not repented and believed in him, we have to repent and believe in him. As we saw last time, there is a healthiness to confessing our sins, to repenting, to turning away from the sins in our lives. Maybe we look at this and go, this is just designed to make us feel small and inadequate by a God who wants to keep us under his thumb. But that's not what's happening here. This is refreshing. This is revitalizing to souls because there is good news. The gospel is the good news. This is not a horrific, wearying, oppressive thing. Matthew Henry puts it this way. By repentance, we give glory to our creator whom we have offended. By faith, we give glory to our redeemer who came to save us from our sins. It is about giving glory to God. Now, while again, that might sound like it's just for God's benefit, there is good in there for us too. Kids, do you remember three weeks ago in the kids' talk when my Uncle Lindsay told you about, there's more to the Westminster uh, Short Catechism than this, but the first question, 
What's the most important thing? What is the chief end of man? The most important thing. Anyone remember? It's about glorify God and enjoy Him forever, isn't it? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. By repentance, we give glory to God. By repentance, we give glory to our Creator whom we have offended. By faith, we give glory to our Redeemer who came to save us from sins. Repentance is not oppressive. Repentance means that we get to live the way that God made us to live. It's like trying to drive a car forwards while putting it in reverse. It doesn't work. It's not right. If you're reversing a car and you quickly put it into drive before, assuming you've got automatic cars, before you stop, it's not good. In many ways, that's what our lives are like before we repent. We're just doing the wrong thing and it hurts us. But this repentance is about giving God glory, enjoying him forever. In repenting from sin, in holding on to the faith that God gives us, we glorify our Father, we glorify our Redeemer. When we do this, again, we live the way we're meant to live. See, Jesus is saying repent and believe. This is not belittling. This is not oppression. This is freedom. Repenting from sin is how, we, even though we sin and still make mistakes before God's face, this is how we live the way God wants us to live. It's liberating and freeing. And we see that then when Jesus walked those dusty Palestinian streets and we see it today. And Mark tells of people who followed Jesus. They believed. They followed him. So Jesus begun his ministry in Galilee. John is decreasing. Christ is increasing. And then he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. In verse 16 here. And we see as he walks beside the sea, he saw Simon and Andrew casting their net into the sea. And we have this awesome, awesome exchange here. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So immediately they put down their nets and they followed after him. Jesus goes a little bit further. He finds two more fishermen brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Fiery guys we find out a little bit later on. They're also fishermen. He says them the same thing. They, they dropped their nets and they followed him. Now, that might seem a little bit too personal and abstract to say, what does that mean for us today? Because this is just Jesus having a conversation with two brothers and then he's having another conversation with another two brothers. What does that mean for us today? Well, there's a lot here for us to learn. We might look at it and go, it's just a, a pattern repeating itself of Jesus liking fishermen. Maybe it's just free dinner. Pretty handy guys to have around. But we see here differences because there's a sense in which not all fishermen are equal. All men stand equal before God's face, but there's a sense here in which not all fishermen are equal. Simon and Andrew are apparently not in the same income bracket as, as James and John. They left their nets and they followed after him. That's all they had on them. James and John, however, they left their boat. 
They left their nets, they left their hired servants, they left their father, and they followed after Jesus. Perhaps we feel self-conscious telling people of the need to follow after Jesus. When we were in Campbell, we were looking at doing a, uh, a church plant. And it was in a suburb called Kingston, which used to be the absolute pits of Canberra, is how it was described to us. And then someone decided to gentrify it. Very, very expensive apartments there. And you look around that place and you go, what more do these people need? They got everything they could imagine. They're wealthy, they're fine, but there's still a need for Jesus. This shows that whether we are well off or not as well off, we all have a need to follow Jesus. Jesus is not just for the country club types. He's not just for those who scrape to meet the bills. He is for everyone. And what that means for us as a church is that whoever walks in those doors of a Sunday morning, whoever turns up to Bible study during the week, should be given the exact same welcome. Nationality, brand of car driven, clothes worn, none of those things should impact how we treat people. Jesus clearly came to save all people. And look at the response of these guys. The ones leaving the boat, the hired servants, their nets and their father, the ones just leaving their net, they dropped everything. They dropped it and they followed after Jesus. It wasn't, just let us finish mending the nets first. It wasn't, just one more cast, then I'll be right with you. It was drop everything when Jesus calls and follow him then. And they were called to be fishers of men. Maybe today it's not just, let me finish this chapter I'm reading. Let me finish this level of the game that I'm playing. The call to follow Jesus requires an immediate response. They were called to be fishers of men. Jesus spoke to them in terms they understood, which as we consider sharing the good news of Jesus, we should take note of as well. These are fishermen. Jesus didn't go up to these guys and say, I have two natures in one, in one person. I am the evidence of the hypostatic union. If you follow me, I will make you evangelizers. And you will save souls. And you will tell people about eternity. Jesus didn't use those words. Jesus used words they understood. I will make you fishers of men. Can you imagine walking up to someone today and saying, have you heard about the one who has a hypostatic union? Jesus met them where they were at. Jesus didn't wait for them to spend enough time learning in the temple to be able to discuss things on his level. The Spirit can, of course, use any words we use in evangelizing to save souls. But our words would likely just go over their heads. And Jesus is for all people. Do we hold Jesus out in a way that all people would understand? Are we willing to meet people on their level? Or do we expect them to rise to our conversational level 
to our understanding of how churches work, to our understanding of theological terms before we can really have a conversation with them about the one who came to save all people from their sins. It might seem small, but this is a big thing for us to consider. And look at the responses again. All four of these presumably young men, they followed him. They immediately followed him. Again, it wasn't one more cast of the net. Let me finish this line here that I'm fixing. Let me finish the chapter of the book I'm reading. One more level of the game, then I'll be right there, mum. It was no. We're going. They left what they had. They left what they were comfortable with and they followed Jesus. And often for us, following Jesus will take us away from our comfort zone. It will take us away from our safety net, realising now they're fishermen with nets. Wasn't trying to be punny. But it will often take us away from our safety net. There are times where God will bless us with comfort and security and those things that we love and enjoy. But there will often be times where we remove from that, and that is what following Jesus requires. As we look at their response, immediate response, is that how we follow Jesus? Again, if God does bless you and you're comfortable, then thank God for that. He is the one who who gives us every good and perfect gift. Our, Our Father in heaven has done wonderful things for us in that regard. But even then, there will likely be opportunities that present themselves to serve Jesus, to to, to show that we follow him in action that drive us away from our comfort zone. Are we willing to do those things? Are we willing to give those things up, to share the good news of the one who came to save? This This is what our Messiah calls us to. He calls us to personal holiness and he calls us to share the good news. There is a challenge for us in how these men responded. There is a challenge for us that we cannot ignore. And while challenges may not give us cause to rejoice all the time, struggling to find reasons to rejoice if you're a Christian and Jesus Christ has said to you follow me and the spirit has moved you to respond and that is wonderful that is a tremendous blessing beyond anything we could ever describe it may seem like a lot of pressure And remember where Jesus went, he went to the cross. He went to the cross so that we could live. Following him will not always be easy. We will likely have to do exactly what Jesus tells us to do, to pick up our cross and follow him. But we do so with an incredibly blessed vantage point in history of knowing that he won the victory and knowing that every single day, every single day, our Heavenly Father blesses for and ministers to each and every one of us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us, reminding us of these incredible truths in Scripture So don't be weighed down by this. Be lifted up by this. 
be encouraged that God cares for the souls of those he calls and he shows that care to them every single day. There is more people out there who need to hear the good news and we should be doing our bit to get the news out there. But do that joyfully, rejoicing in Jesus, glad for who he is, glad for what he's done and be thankful every day that we did hear his voice saying, follow me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these incredible things that we have read in these verses in Mark. We thank you that you, our Lord and Saviour, did not succumb to temptation where everyone else, including ourselves, has. We thank you that you were open in sharing the good news. And we thank you that you personally call, call your people to follow you. We rejoice in your goodness to us. We pray that you would shape us to, to live these things out better and better every day. That we might respond immediately to the opportunities that you give us. And that we might be faithful in all that we do. Yet we pray that you would prevent us from feeling weighed down by the burden that it is sometimes to share the gospel. But see the joy that it is to live with you. And the blessing it is to share this news of life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.